Did you ever think you were made it? I feel I'm so close I could take sweet victory I know this life meant for me yeah. yeah, why would you bet on Goliath when we got bet David? Value taming, giving values contagious. This world of entrepreneurs, we get no value to hate it. How they run, homie? Look what I become. I'm Patrick Bedev, your host of Itemi. Today I'm sitting down with General Spalding. We brought him back for a second time because the last time we did the interview when he talked about 5G, they got 15 million views on all across the board with different platforms. Today we're going to talk about life after coronavirus. Robert, we appreciate you for coming back and being a guest on Itemi again. Great to be back. And I brought the Hulk with me. I feel very safe. We got two of them now. One to protect you and one to protect me on this side here. So, Robert, let's get right into it. So, is this a pandemic or is this a pandemic? Well, <laughs> I, you know, that's a hard question to answer because, you know, we're dealing with a totalitarian regime. Uh, if we had perfect knowledge of what the Chinese Communist Party's plans were, I think we could answer that. But, you know, we have to intuit based on what facts we do have. So, we do know, for example, that there's a P4 uh, lab in Wuhan. That lab, a researcher was doing uh, gain-of-function research on uh, bat-related coronaviruses and published a paper on that. And that paper talked about uh, the ability to infect humans. We do know that. We also know that on January 7th, the WHO met in Geneva and talked about the fact that there was human-to-human -human transmission going on. And in fact, we also know that in Wuhan, they knew in December there was human-to-human -human transmission. And of course, we also know that Xi Jinping uh, met with the, stand the Politburo Standing Committee where they... Um, and he talked about taking control of the, um, of the, um, the growing pandemic at, on the 7th of January. So we know that he knew that they he had human-to-human -human transmission. And so, um, and, and let me revise that. On the 23rd of January, the WHO met in Geneva and talked about human-to-human -human transmission. On the somewhere around the 22nd or 23rd of January, we know that Wuhan was locked down. And at that time, the Wuhan mayor made a statement that already 5 million people from Chinese New Year's had left the city to the four corners of the earth. So what we know is they were doing work on the virus. We don't know if that's where it came from or if it came from the wet market. And we can't know that because the Chinese Communist Party is not gonna allow us into the lab. They're not gonna allow us to talk to the researchers. All the data has been scrubbed, we don't know. What we do know for a fact is both the Chinese Communist Party leadership and the WHO leadership knew there was human-to-human -human transmission prior to the five million people leaving when they locked down Wuhan. So, pandemic, pandemic, I don't know, but uh, in terms of the origin of the virus, I do know that in terms of the pandemic itself, you could call that a pandemic because they knew that there was human to human transmission and they let those people leave. And you know, the president acted quickly to shut down flights to and from China, and thank God he did. The problem is that we kept them coming from Europe. So you see the big infection happening in New York because of travel coming to and from Europe where the Chinese people that had left Wuhan went into Europe and created the infections that, that spread to New York. So, so now to, to manage expectation with the audience, I think it's important to know why you're an expert in the topic of China. Robert, if you don't mind taking a moment and sharing with uh, the rest of us, those who haven't seen your interview, on what your experience has been with CCP, with China. So, you know, um, I lived in China for the first time in, from 2002 to 2004. Uh, I was a major in the Air Force. I was an Olmsted scholar. I studied at Tongji University. Uh, before that, I had spent a year studying Chinese language at the Defense Language Institute, so I spoke Chinese. I moved there in 2002 with my family. Uh, that was right after China entered the WTO, so we went all over the country. I learned uh, about the people, the culture, the history, the geography, and traveled um, widely within China. So I really understood China. 
Uh, I didn't understand the Chinese Communist Party or the government. As I went on in my career as a B-2 pilot, the Air Force decided to send me back to China to be the defense attache and the senior defense official in Beijing. In order to prepare for that, they sent me to the Council on Foreign Relations for a year uh, in New York City to meet with a lot of our industry and finance leaders and corporate leaders. I then went to the Pentagon where I advised the chairman on strategy with regard to China for two years, first Chairman Dempsey, then Chairman Dumford. And it, during that time, I had a team of China experts that were solely focused on understanding the China competition with the United States in economics, finance, trade, information, media, propaganda, all elements of the competition. And I went from there to be the, uh, the senior defense official in Beijing. Uh, and almost immediately after the six months I spent there, uh, I went uh, to the White House to be the senior director for strategy at the National Security uh, Council, where I was a chief architect for the national security strategy that we're currently implementing with regard to uh, the globe, but more specifically, China. And, and if you don't mind also uh, sharing why you were fired uh, a few months later after being hired, what, what caused you to be fired when you started speaking on uh, a certain topic, uh, it kind of raised some eyebrows. What happened there? After the uh, national security strategy was primarily in form, in, 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 its, in its final form, and I felt like we had the right uh, framework for it, I started an intense study on 5G. And I brought in all the experts, not from in terms of policy, but in terms of engineering and science, really to understand uh, the technology. And then what we did is talked about for about six months the opportunities and challenges with regard to 5G. And at that point, I realized that um, we had a significant problem with the collection of data in democracies all over, the, all over the globe by the Chinese Communist Party, and that 5G was going to actually increase or amplify that collection of data, not just for economic benefit of China, but also for intelligence collection and influence of our society. I wrote a, I wrote a report that was intended to stay within government to explain those opportunities and challenges. And I actually briefed that to many, that report to many of the cabinet members in the current Trump administration. What happened was the telco industry, you know, AT&T, Verizon, T-Mobile, and Sprint found out about the report, were concerned that it might lead to some kind of changes in terms of how we regulate the collection of data on Americans and pushed really hard with their lobbyists in Washington, D.C. to have me removed from the White House. And who were the two characters that were not happy about uh, you uh, speaking against China? Who, one on each side. One was a Democrat, one was a Republican. Well, you know, so in the book I talk about, and it's really, uh, it's meant to be representative of both parties, uh, really, and the influence of the Chinese Communist Party in both parties. So in my book I talk about uh, both uh, Senator Mitch McConnell, who has, uh, through his wife, ties to the former general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party, Jiang Zemin, and of course, Joe Biden, who through his son, Hunter, uh, you know, Hunter had gotten, I think, a billion and a half dollars from the Chinese Communist Party for a, uh, for a private equity fund. So, you know, I really try to explain that it's happening on both sides of the aisle. Perfect. And the reason why I wanted us to start there with the ba with basis is those who haven't seen this, you know, you're not leaning one side or the other. It's very neutral no. and it's not a conspiracy. This isn't something where you're, you know, uh, you create content. You're not a content creator. You're somebody who was a general. You're somebody that directly had experience living in China and you're giving us your expertise based on data you have access to that some of us maybe don't have access to. We definitely don't have access to with the research you can do. Now, before I get into some of the other stuff, Robert, I, I took this approach with Gordon uh, uh, Chang that I had on Gordon Chang was on that uh, uh, documentary that you were also part of with Epoch Times that I think was launched a couple weeks ago. Uh, and I also had uh, uh, Danielle DeMartino Booth, who was also on here. We talked more on the finance side. And then this morning I had David Icon, which many would call him a conspiracy theorist. He calls himself a, a conspiracy researcher. 
and it's confused a lot of people out there and it scared ahead a lot of people because they're hearing a lot of things. I'm going to ask you what some claims that are being made out there and you're a very reasonable guy. How much credibility would you give to this? Robert, if you don't mind just saying zero, maybe a little bit, 100% that's accurate. That'll give the audience a better understanding of what your views are with this. Are you comfortable with that? Sure. Okay, number one, is coronavirus real? Does it exist? Yes. Okay. Number two, is 5G the reason for the spread of coronavirus? No. Number three, is it natural or is it man-made? Uh, that I would lean towards man. Uh, I would lead towards it's natural, but I believe this particular strain, strain was modified in a lab. T tell me why you say that. Because the species of bat that it's purported to have come from doesn't, it doesn't exist in Wuhan. And so the idea that it came from the Wuhan wet market and then jumped to civet cat and then jumped to human, I, I just find implausible. Did you see the report that came in yesterday uh, from an insider that said, uh, source believes coronavirus originated in Wuhan lab as part of China's efforts to compete against U.S.? And uh, uh, John Roberts asked the question from President Trump. Uh, more and more, we're hearing the story. We are doing a very thorough examination of the horrible situation. Apparently, there's a patient zero. Have you heard about this patient zero where the initial transmission of the virus was bad to human and that patient zero worked at the laboratory, then went into the population in Wuhan, and then it spread? How, how much credibility do you give to that source and that story? My, my sense is, you know, if I was going to give a probability to did this, was this an accident? And again, I'm basing this on the fact of the Washington Post article that said that there was a, a state cable from the U.S. Embassy explaining that they were concerned about the, the, uh, the safety uh, precautions that are, were taking, that they witnessed were being taken in the P4 lab in 2018. Um, so I'm leaning towards it was probably uh, accidentally released as, as kind of the, the how, it, how it escaped. And, and so I, I, I find that um, story, particularly because that person's been wiped from the logs of the Wuhan uh, um, Institute of Virology, I find that to be more credible than, than anything. Okay, that's good to hear. Uh, uh, is this uh, China retaliating to Donald Trump due to strong measures he took on the tariffs? So it's a form of revenge and retaliation to hurt the economy, because that's the one card Trump could use. And if the market drops and the Dow drops, it hurts the chances of Trump getting reelected. Okay, so now you're talking about um, why they allowed the 5 million people to leave Wuhan. Or are we still talking about if it wasn't an accident that the virus escaped? Yeah, so both ways. So for me, it's they knew that this was happening. They said, well, let it go out there. Because if it does, it hurts their economy. We don't like this guy. He's strong arming us. We want somebody else that we can negotiate with. We've done dealings with Biden in the past before. We'd rather have Biden as president than Trump as president. Okay, so um, if we go back to the, the, or the source of the virus, and I said I, I think it's, it's more probable that it was an, an accident, that it was accidentally released. If you went to the lower probability and said it was purposely released, then I would say the, the, the likelihood that it was aimed at the United States, I think, would be a low probability. You know, if it was purposely released, I would put uh, as internal domestic uh, political um, reasons as more probable. In other words, somebody was trying to damage Xi uh, because of the, um, the harsh measures around the uh, anti-corruption campaign that he's used to basically shore up power. So I would think it would be, I don't think it's probable, but if that is this explanation, I would say it's more likely that it was uh, domestic politics, not um, you know, aimed at the United States. Now, in terms of why the 5 million people were allowed to leave Wuhan, it could be that at that point, they realized that they had a problem that they couldn't contain. And rather than having that be only China that had to deal with that and, and, and create the, the economic devastation that the coronavirus has created, that it would be much more better for them in terms of geopolitics if 
the entire world was infected because then everybody's dealing with it, not just them. So that's a complete different angle because now you're thinking somebody from the inside in China who is not happy with Xi is uh, kind of retaliating through this. That's that more be, I don't think that's probable. I'm saying I think it's probable it's an accident. But if somehow we were to find out this was purposely done, you know, sometime in the future, something happens and the Chinese Communist Party is no more and we get access to the archives and interview people and we find out it was done purposely, my guess is at that point, if it was, we would find out that it was aimed at Xi. Okay, interesting. Uh, so, so far right now, we have 2.164 million cases as of today. Today is April 16th. 233 while I'm saying this, uh, we have 144,313 deaths, of which 33,903 is in U.S. So knowing those numbers, knowing those numbers, the other story you're hearing about is the fact that the death toll isn't necessarily true because many other forms of death are being blamed to coronavirus, even though main cause wasn't coronavirus, which, which makes it not as deadly as what a lot of reports are coming in. And, and, you're, and you're asking me, you know, what I think about that. that. What I'm asking you is what, how much weight you put behind the fact that people are saying these numbers that are coming in with the death toll of coronavirus, how deadly it is, it is not as deadly. It is because the way they're putting the reporting, they're saying it's death due to coronavirus versus the person was going to die anyways, but they also ended up having coronavirus. So the statistics makes it scarier with the death toll we're getting with coronavirus? I don't know if they're purposely making it scarier. I do know that we have a problem with statistics. We, we actually don't know what the true numbers are. And, we're, and what we're trying to do is more finely, you know, resolve what the true numbers are. I think there are some problems with the way that we're collecting data. Um, and, and particularly if you look at... Um, the, you know, what the CDC said, how they're going to count, you know, some of that uh, is using other means other than a positive COV-19 um, test. So, you know, it could be that, you know, some, there's some miscounting there. I think the bigger problem is that we don't know in the broader population the total percentage of infected people because we don't know how many are asymptomatic. Uh, so far, apparently 1% of U.S. has been tested. 1% of U.S. has been tested. What, what is the best way for us to get the best kind of data on this? What do you suggest? Self-testing? Is that the only way? Well, I, you know, I think statistics would say that you would do a random sampling of the population, and that would give you the kind of data that you need without having to test everybody. And I think if we had institute a random, random sampling, of the population, much like we do for um, you know the you know polling of data, then we'd have much closer uh, numbers in terms of what percentage of the um, of the population has actually been uh, influenced by the virus. Okay, for, again, that's why if the audience is watching this, you're a reasonable man. You don't get excited about a conspiracy. You're just a matter of fact type of person which gives a lot of comfort to some of the people that are watching because when you do say something, there's a lot of weight behind it. No wonder the 5G video everybody was watching saying, uh, this man seems like a reasonable man to give his counsel. Here's another one. Another one you're hearing about is the fact that coronavirus is being used as a way of el eliminating the older population to save many countries money due to the cost of you know, insurance of the elderly. What are your thoughts about that? That's just a very cynical way of looking at the world. I, I just can't imagine that uh, anybody would come up with something like that. I, that's, that that's more like the CIA, uh, you know, was responsible for 9-11. Okay, that's good to know. So that's where you are with that one. Okay, how about the Bill Gates and vaccines? You know, the TED Talk he gave in 2015. And then, you know, after he gives a TED Talk for 2015 about one of the things we have to worry about is pandemic. Then I go research an interview he did with Dr. Gupta in 2011, I believe, February of 2011, where Dr. Gupta asks tens of billions of dollars over the next 10 years to make the year of the vaccines. 
What does that mean exactly? And in Bill Gates' response, over this decade, we believe unbelievable progress can be made in both inventing new vaccines and making sure they got they get out to all the children who need them. We only need about six or seven more, and then you would have all the tools to reduce reduce childhood death, reduce population growth, and everything, the stability, the environment, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, how much of this has to do with reducing population growth? Because there are people that are, I don't want to say the word depopulation, but a method of reducing population growth because long-term, we cannot sustain constant population growth that we have. Well, I, what you see and typically in developing countries is as they become more wealthy, they tend to produce fewer children. So it isn't, they, they, they tend to top out at, at and, and we don't, get to a, a situation where, you know, they're overpopulating their, their area. In fact, some of the, uh, the developed countries are actually being depopulated because they don't have enough, um, you know, uh, population growth. So I don't really, I don't really find it plausible that we need um, a vaccine to, you know, you know, get rid of a bunch of old people because we have too many people. I, I, I just don't, that doesn't make any sense to me. We, you know, we, it doesn't follow the pattern of kind of development of societies. So if, if, if they were to announce a vaccine is out and Bill Gates is coming out with the vaccine, would you take that vaccine? Uh, for the coronavirus? Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah, of course. Tell, tell me why are you so certain about saying absolutely? There are people that are probably flabbergasted by you saying absolutely. Well, because look, um, for most things, you know, the immune system's uh, prepared to deal with it. If something new gets introduced, you know, uh, like the, this coronavirus, who knows what the implications are for your health? I think we come up with vaccines to, um, to pre prevent these kinds of uh, horrible diseases from taking a certain percentage of our population every single year. I think, you know, if you look at you know, the, the evolution of, you know, health, it's primarily because of sanitation and the germ theory of disease that we have extended, you know, lives uh, so much. But it's also true that things like smallpox and, and other things that, that were a scourge on the earth have been eliminated because of vaccines. So vaccines play an important role in, in, uh, in population health. And, 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 I'm more terrified of people not vaccinating their children for things that can cause, you know, widespread uh, social death. Like this, this pandemic is really not as bad as like the Spanish flu. And so, you know, we, we need to think about the implications if, say we had now at this point 30 million dead, how devastating that would be. So that's what vaccines bring. They bring, they, they actually, protect the population for these, from these really bad diseases that, that uh, tend to, to come out. And that's why we, that's why we have uh, scientists that are looking at cures for this stuff. So I would absolutely take a, take a vaccine for coronavirus. And I would recommend everybody that I knew take a vaccine for coronavirus if we had one. It is interesting to note, by the way, that we've had HIV with us for decades now, and we still don't have a vaccine. So I, would, I guess I would ask Bill Gates is, how is he so confident if we can't even find a vaccine for HIV or for AIDS? Excuse me. Where are you going with that? Well, I'm, you know, I think it's, it's going to be a lot harder to find a, a vaccine than maybe we, we think it is. That leads me a whole different question before I uh, wrap up this section here. Here's my next question for you is, Robert, I'm not worried about the coronavirus. I'm not worried about COVID-19. Here's my concern. And, you know, you're hearing about the fact that China, the games they want to play, and I think you would probably verify this, they're realizing they're not as strong military-wise as U.S., and if they were to ever have a direct war, that's just not their style. So they're spending more time into biochemical warfare. They're spending more money into drug trafficking, poisoning, environmental destruction, computer virus dissemination. Are you familiar with that being one of their approach that they're taking, China? Yes. That's, that's already out there. Everyone knows about that. Yes. Okay. So then this is my follow-up to you. What, 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 if it's taken this long and you're hearing people say, you know, Anthony Fauci say it's going to take 12 to 18 months to get a vaccine, right? And, you know, another doctor the other day talked about the fact that zinc helps with the help of quanine 
quinine and with the help of all these things he was talking about that could help with this, which are symptoms of malaria, which we've gone through before. But what if we have a, another pandemic, another virus that spreads that's highly deadly and a, with a very high R0 score that's, you know, uh, 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 viral uh, and deadly? How do we cure that from spreading? Is this going to be a norm now where countries and the world's going to be shutting down more often the next decade or two? Well, you know, I think one of the things that um, we could think of is how we could use better uh, um, technology to uh, recognize that we have an outbreak and deal with it um, in, in a humane way. And for this, I would refer you to how Taiwan dealt with um, the coronavirus as opposed to the Chinese Communist Party. So in December, uh, Taiwan, the Taiwanese, uh, got uh, noticed that they were having these, um, you know, SARS-like pneumonias, viral pneumonias in Wuhan. And they sent some researchers to Wuhan to ask some questions. And the researchers came back and said, they're not answering our questions. And so right away, uh, Taiwan instituted measures. They stood up a, um, the CDC. They started forcing um, checks at the borders. They shut down all flights from Wuhan. And and to Wuhan, they started um, testing people, they started requiring social distancing and masks, contact tracing. They implemented the basic steps of preventing the spread of a pandemic. And if the Chinese Communist Party had acted like that, we wouldn't be in this situation right now. And if you look at how Taiwan's dealt with uh, the coronavirus, they've, they've had very mild issues there because they were on it you know, right away. And I think what we have in this world, because you saw both Google and Apple come out with apps to, to help uh, do contact tracing. The problem with the world that we've created, and I talked about it in the last video, is it doesn't allow for privacy. So now the cops are going and locking people up rather than, you know, depending on this country on the, 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 uh, the education of the population and the fact that they're going to do the right thing because we live in a democracy and we understand that the government's being transparent and telling us, hey, we need to do this in order to prevent, you know, people from getting sick and dying. And we could bring technology to that. And I've actually wrote about that when I was at the Air War College back in 2008 to say we need to really prepare for a, a pandemic because there we are working on genetic genetically altering organisms and creating organisms in the lab that haven't existed before. And if we do find one that has an R naught of, of greater than two and is 100% deadly, of course, you know what that means. So we need to be prepared and technology can help us be prepared, but we need to do it in a way that protects our democracy. And, and today we are not doing that. I would not trust a tech company or the Chinese Communist Party to put out tracking uh, stuff right now because it doesn't, uh, you know, that's why global data protection regulations were put in place because the, realis the, the Europeans realize that these tools have gotten far too invasive into our lives and we need to implement technology in a way that can protect us from a pandemic but not turn us into an authoritarian um, dictatorship at the same time. Robert, who do you trust to uh, protect us today? Who do you trust to make the right decisions to make sure this can be uh, either prevented or this can be handled in the most effective way possible in the future when it happens again? Well, I would say that today we need to revamp the CDC. The CDC was clearly not prepared to deal with a pandemic. I would say in that case that Bill Gates was right. Uh, but he's not the only one. A lot of people have said, hey, CDC, you're not prepared. We're not doing the things the right way. I would, after this is all over, I would go to Taiwan and basically say, show us what you did. And then let's figure out how in our democracy, we're not Taiwan. They're a much smaller country, a lot fewer people. But how, how do in our democracy to be, become a lot better prepared for dealing with a pandemic? Because you know there's going to be something else that comes, um, you know, in the future. And so we can't just, you know, forget about it like we forgot about SARS. We actually need to learn something this time. Apply technology, but apply it in a humane, 
a way that that really recognizes that we're a free society and 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 citizens want their data security and privacy intact. When you were when you were active in the Air Force and you lived in China and you had all these pandemics that's being talked about more over there than here, did you ever expect something like this to get to the point in the U.S. where everybody would be forced to shut down for as long as we've been shut down? No, but you know what? That's, that's to be expected because I didn't think – you know, I understood, you know, as I said, um, as early as 2008, that we could have a potentially a pandemic that would be devastating. But you don't really think about the consequences. You know, I, I didn't sit there and dwell on, okay, this would actually be uh, the economic de devastation would actually be worse. It's only after, you know, the first week of this shutdown that I realized, oh, my gosh, First of all, the models are incorrect. They are hyperinflated. Now that's the first week of this shutdown. And I realized, okay, what's gonna happen here is, based on the data that I'm seeing, the empirical data, the actual deaths that are happening, the actual infections that we're finding, that this is not gonna be as severe as the models are predicting, and the models are driving us to shut the country down. And as we shut the country down, you know what happens companies close, businesses close, people are unemployed. We've got, I think now it's 23 million. We're looking at something like 40 million people being un unemployed in a short period of time. Oh, by the way, food factories have shut down. So warehouses are starting to drain and supermarkets are gonna be next. We, this country, the way we do logistics and delivery of supplies is not meant for a long-term shutdown. And so what I realized after the first week is if we didn't figure out how to deal with this and open the country back up, the economic devastation would be far worse to our social fabric than anything the coronavirus could do. And of course, that's played out exactly as I said. So, so if you were somebody who was in charge and now that we have some more data, would you say open it back up to getting the economy going and businesses opening back up? Is, it, is that what you're suggesting, that it's time for us to do that? Yeah, I would institute randomized testing of the entire population, randomized. We don't have to test every single statistics works. We can, we can do random testing. I would institute uh, masks and social distancing, and I would put people back to work. And for those that were most at risk, I would say continue to quarantine and, until this abates. But here's the deal. Those people aren't gonna to wanna to stay cooped up for 12 to 18 months that Dr. Fauci thinks it's gonna to take to get a, um, a, uh, a vaccine. So what I, what I predict will happen is people will be wearing these masks for about two weeks and then they'll be back to work and then the masks are gonna come off and then they're just gonna start living their lives again. I think what we, what we have now is mass hysteria and mass fear and we need to get back in, in contact with each other again. And as we get back in contact with the, each other again, we'll realize that we're not going to die every time we see somebody. And when that happens, we're going to get tired of wearing masks and, and you know, doing the elbow bump. And, and it's going to go back to the way things were. But we need to be able to get people out of their homes and in contact with each other and actually running the economy. Because if we don't, we're going to be in a, in a big trouble and the country is not going to be able to deal with a social disorder that's going to come from this long-term economic shutdown. Is the way of doing business forever changed or no? We'll forget about this and move on in the next 6, 12 months. We'll forget about it and move on. You think we're going to forget about it and move on? I think we're going to forget about it and move on. Interesting. If people have very short memories. They, we just need to get rid of the fear, create some certainty. Understand that, no, everybody's not going to die. Some people won't even get sick. Most people, 85% of the people or so, will not even have symptoms. It's a big number, 85% won't even have And you're hearing about some people even being immune to it, meaning they can't even get it. Like, even if you... Well, that, and that, that, would be, that would be, you know, the 85% that don't have symptoms. I mean, essentially... Disease really comes from the reaction of the body to fighting the organism and, and, right. and, and the fact that you have some pre-existing medical condition or you're elderly.
So you're thinking a, a, a part of the solution is immediate herd immunity with a form of quarantine for those who are above a certain age to keep staying safe until this goes back to normal. So you're for a form of herd immunity. So yes, but I'm also for uh, flattening the curve. I recognize that and particularly, and this is what I said also in the beginning, the entire country is not New York. If you've lived in New York, and I have, you understand the population density is such that it needs to act differently than Fresno, California, where I grew up, right? We're not packed like sardines in Fresno, California, but we definitely are in Manhattan and 40% of the people are riding the, the, the subway. So that's a different situation. So each, each locality in the United States needs to have different rules peculiar to that locality. And then we need to take precautions, as I said. So I'm not against flattening the curve. And so if we wanted to take two weeks off until we could get the right procedures so that people were understood that you wear a mask not to protect yourself, you wear a mask to protect other people from what's coming, what you're breathing out. So if you are asymptomatic, you're not breathing those out up to 13 feet away from your body. And so, and, and then not shaking hands. Again, it, it, that makes sense in this current environment. But here's the deal. If we don't have um, a, a vaccine in 18 months, like Fauci says, then what are those people that are at risk going to do? I mean, there's been people that are 85 years old that have lived through the virus. People do not do well if they're cooped up in their house for months on end. And this country won't do well economically if we do that. And so you had to do some curve flattening, but then we needed to get right back to work and really understand that we are going to get through this. It's not, this coronavirus is not so deadly, so much more deadly than the common flu. We lost 60,000 people uh, last year to the flu, by the way. Uh, how is your current life right now? What are you doing? Are you staying home? Are you going out? What, what are you doing? I'm just curious. I, I am, all the people that I would typically interact with, all of those uh, organizations and offices are shut down. So the only thing I can do to interact and to continue to, to do what I do, which is press push the message about the Chinese Communist Party, is do like I'm doing here, which is do it virtually. Look, that being said, here's some good here's some good news. The federal government actually man or the Congress actually mandated that the federal government implement telecommunicating uh, telecommunication for as much or telework for as much of the workforce as possible. And the federal government's basically ignored that for, for, for decades. And hopefully what's come out of this is realization, hey, that we can be somewhat productive doing telework. We don't wanna do it all, but we can, we can save money on transportation. We can save the waste of time that we're in the vehicle by doing a lot of things virtually. We don't wanna do everything virtually, but I think that's one of the benefits of, of, of this actually shutdown is really, recognizing that we can work like this. Is it driving you nuts or no? I'm going stir crazy. Yeah, I, I fully understand. So uh, you, were, you were in China when SARS happened, weren't you? I think you were living in China when SARS happened. I was. What, 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 what was it like when uh, in China? Was there a hysteria or was it just kind of like they're used to it and they have certain steps that they took? So, um, again, I didn't understand the Chinese Communist Party at the time, so I actually believed, I actually believed what Beijing was saying. Um, and, and at the time, it was um, in southern China where it started, I think Guangzhou, uh, and then it spread to Beijing. And, you know, do the, do, do the geography, Shanghai is between Guangzhou and Beijing. So I thought it was odd that Shanghai had hardly uh, any... Uh, any sicknesses, and I thought, well, there, there's something wrong there. But, and that leads us to say, we weren't huddling in our house. What happened was all of the, um, all the embassy people in, in, in the U.S. were evacuated when SARS happened, and, um, but they forgot about us, me and my family. So we were living in Shanghai, and everybody had been evacuated for like a month, and then somebody picks up the phone and calls me in Shanghai, and they say, um, we, forgot about, we forgot about you. Would you like to be evacuated? I thought, okay, well, if everybody else is evacuated, even though the, the numbers are low here in Shanghai, and that, that always seemed weird to me, maybe it's, 
it's it's wise that we evacuate. So we eventually evacuated, and then within a couple of months, uh, you know, everything was clear and we came back. How how quickly did things clear up there? Was it? I mean, uh, uh, meaning culturally, was the news saying, "Oh, everything's okay, everything is fine, it's nothing bad," you know, just kind of like right now the news. We only have 82,000 cases, only 3,000 people have died, and we haven't had any death since we've opened up. How much of it was the media trying to control the narrative because the media is controlled by the government? How much of it was controlled by the government with yeah, the message? Yeah, I mean, I think it was, again, they were doing the exact. So how the government reacted now that I, you know, as I look back, I realized they were doing the exact same things. No, no exact change same at things all as today. As today. as today. As today. Same thing. Robert, with, with coronavirus going on, last time you and I spoke, this wasn't going on. How, how has your opinion about China changed the last five months? Well, my, my opinion hasn't changed at all. What, what, I'm, what I'm thankful to see is everybody is starting to have the awakening that I had in 2014 when I opened that email from, from the guy from New York and looked at the, you know, the devastation of our economy you know, that, the, that the audit firm had found. And, uh, and, and I, that's when my eyes open. I think what's happening now, the coronavirus is enabling uh, Amer not just Americans, people all over the world to see for the first time with clear eyes what the Chinese Communist Party is and what they represent. So a lot of your theories where you were getting uh, criticism for last year, now people are saying, well, Robert, I agree with you. You're, get you're, 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 you're getting that experience with people today. Uh, absolutely. And, and not only that, you know, they're, they're buying the book, uh, Stealth War, and they're, they're reading it and they're understanding it. You know, uh, look, Patrick, I knew that eventually people would wake up because it's just, it's, it's pure facts. You can see what's going on. And, when, and, and all it took was something to awaken them. And so what's happening now in terms of realization, I think is something that I always expected. I just thought it was going to come it was going to take a longer amount of time for me to be out there messaging. You know, the coronavirus is actually the other silver lining other than telecommuting is the, the, the awakening of the American people and other democracies to what totalitarianism is, what the Chinese Communist Party is, and, and how democracies really need to respond in a globalized world to the to presence of uh, totalitarianism in our midst. How is China held accountable moving forward? How, how, how does the world, how does America hold China accountable moving forward? Well, I think there, there's a number of ways. We could continue with the, what the federal government is doing. We could make uh, tariffs permanent, uh, like back before they entered the WTO, because they have a non-market-based economy. You know, all of these countries that have Belt and Road Initiative projects could collectively decide to default on their payments all of them together. And then we can also seek reparations uh, ac from across the board, from all countries, because, you know, trillions of dollars in lost economic uh, productivity, you know, thousands of people killed and, and, and made sick. This was, we know it was purposely done by the Chinese Communist Party. It's clear that, you know, any, any reparations we want to get at this, at this point would be, um, would be um, warranted. Uh, how much do you trust the World Health Organization? Uh, zero. Zero? Zero. So, so, so it's fair to say that you and uh, Tedros are not on texting mode. <laughs> I, think he, I think he tweeted uh, yesterday, love, and I said, I tweeted, me some CCP. <laughs> do you think he is in bed with those guys absolutely a hundred percent meaning 100%, no no doubt in my mind why do you say that well because he if he wasn't why would he knowing that there's human to human transmission not call for a global pandemic warning prior to those five million people leaving wuhan he enabled it. So the, the Chinese Communist Party perpetrated it, and the WHO, who has the responsibility to warn the public, just like the CDC of Taiwan warned its public, except world means everybody, 
they have their responsibility to unflinchingly go to China, ask the hard questions. If they get the wrong answers, turn around and say, global pandemic, shut it down. And Tedros is there having news uh, conferences saying, we should not stigmatize China and we should allow travel. You know, there's no problem here. Okay, meaning you guys keep your airports open and, and all these infected people are going go to go to Europe, then they're going to go to New York and we're going to have tens of thousands of people die. That's what Tedros did. How did he get hired? How did he get the job, by the way? It was pushed. He was, he was backed by China. And so was the prior director general of the WHO. So it's actually been under the influence of uh, the Chinese Communist Party for, for quite some time. Do you think Trump's making a right move saying they're going to defund them? What, what person in his right mind would fund an organization that is under the influence of a totalitarian regime and absolutely incapable of doing this job? It doesn't make any sense that we send 400, let's take that 400 million and let's reform the CDC and, and, and tell them to learn some lessons from Taiwan and actually implement them here so the next time this happens, by God, we're in better place. Who do you trust more, World Trade Organization or World Health Organization? <laughs> I would put them on an, I'd say I trust the WTO about a, a, a half a, a millimeters, uh, you know, a hair length above the WHO. You, you, you think guys like this, because sometimes you hear these stories, you think guys like this are getting paid on the side that no one knows about from China? Yes. Or do you think that, Oh, you no think doubt. you think Tedros is getting paid on the side he, and no he, one knows about? There, there is something. There is some remuneration that's going on that we will probably never have insight into. No doubt in my mind. Who does he report to? Who does well? Who does Tedros report to? And World Health Organization. Who holds them accountable? That, that's a good question. I, I, I would assume that the uh, uh, the Secretary General of the United Nations. But you know, and in, in, at the end of the day. You know, all of these international institutions don't report to anybody. That's the whole point of the system. It's, it's kind of, uh, you know, we come together and, and agree on a set of rules that we're going to abide by. And that's what I've been trying to say is when you bring a totalitarian re regime into that system that doesn't play by the rules, who then has the power to influence that system instead of democratic principles, human rights, civil liberty, rule of law, self-determination, free trade, you get the opposite. Uh, do you think this method of running a country can last a long time, or do you think a collapse like uh, Gordon uh, Chang talks about is uh, around the corner? I don't think a collapse is around the corner unless democracies recognize what's going on and work to limit the influence of the Chinese Communist Party, both in their own countries and in international institutions. It's, there, there's no way that they have too much access to innovation, technology, talent, and capital from the West from all sectors, uh, they're, they're going to be fine. You know, if we were actually managed as democracies to come together. So forget about the WHO. Democracies need to recognize that the international institutions aren't promoting the principles and values that they espouse, and they just need to work together bilaterally and then over time multilaterally to ensure those principles are reinforced in uh, in, in institutions like the United Nations and the World Health Organization and the World Trade Organization. It's politics. Geopolitics is just like politics on, on a local or a national level. The more that you have on your side that are actually pushing for preservation of the system and preservation of the principles, that side will win out over those that are trying to tear it down. And I think what's happened is the democracies of the world have kind of let the authoritarians take over using money and influence, and, and they've been very successful at it. It's time for us to take back ownership of the international order and promote the kind of principles that we want to see go forward and, and, and propagate in the world. Makes you, uh, makes you think. Uh, you know, uh, I asked this question from a few other people. I'm curious to know what you say about this. Is, you know, we're sitting here and we're strong arm in uh, China. We're negotiating with them. But at the same time, hey, uh, we need some masks. Where's it made? China. Well, listen, we got to take it anyways. Hey, we need these uh, ventilators. Ah, take them anyways. Hey, we need this uh, medicine. If they come out with a solution for uh, coronavirus, well, China's 80% of pharma is built over there. Have we gone too far 
where the world is relying a little too much on China and China knows it and uses that as leverage to negotiate and push people around? A hundred percent. Absolutely. How do you get away from that? Well, um, first of all, you go back to making tariffs permanent because they, they're human rights violators and they don't have a free market economy. Uh, you don't allow uh, U.S. corporations to count assets held in China because they have a non-convertible currency and strict capital controls. You don't allow our retirement funds to invest in Chinese companies and Chinese bonds and stocks because we don't require them to be audited like we do U.S. companies. You basically just make the Chinese abide by all the same rules that Americans and American companies have to abide by here in the United States. And you do that with all our allies and partners. And when you do that, they don't have purchase, right? They have to compete on a level playing field. That's not what they're used to. They're used to getting their way. And, and we did that for a reason. We did that because we thought they would democratize. They would liberalize politically. They would become more like us. What they've created is a world that, that drives us to be more like them. I asked you this question last time. I'm wondering to, uh, if your answer has changed at all. Uh, who needs who more? Is it U.S. needs China or does China need U.S.? The U.S. doesn't need China at all. At okay. all. Got it. Our, our so, economy does not derive, you know, a majority of its value from China. It derives a majority of its value domestically. We have a very good uh, consumption-based economy here in the United States. And, uh, you know, but... The Chinese economy absolutely is dependent on the United States and, so, and, and, and other democratic economies. And so uh, theirs is a, an export-driven economy. So we don't need China at all. They absolutely need us. If that's the case, why aren't we uh, 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 coming together on the same page and pushing them a little bit to say, hey, you know, you got to open it up. And if you want us to be more comfortable... I want you to allow Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, social media, media, everybody in China, because we got to know what's going on there because we don't trust any of your data. Well, that's just not going to happen. The Chinese Communist Party is not going to do that. The reason our corporations and our, and, our, and our investment banks are pushing for us to be there is because, you know, the, the Chinese government subsidizes power to the factories. They, they allow them, you know, through the inspectors not to abide by environmental rules. You've got nets around the Foxconn plant because people jump out because of the, the intense uh, you know, labor uh, violations that are going on in China. So it's all the, all the horrible things that we live through in our economy, but because we're a democracy, we put in labor laws and we put in environmental protections. You know, we actually dealt with uh, this kind of behavior. All of these corporations have gone over to China where the rules don't exist. The only rule is that the Chinese Communist Party stays in, in control. And that allows companies like Apple to have $260 billion in cash because their margins are incredibly steep because of those reasons. On the investment bank side, they get a fee for every Chinese stock and Chinese bond that's sold. And so they're more than willing to push it. Even You even saw with the coronavirus and the fact that trade wars on, you still got investment banks in uh, Wall Street pushing Chinese stocks saying this is where you need to invest. It, it just it really lets you know you know what's going on. The system is incentivized to pr provide the Chinese Communist Party with everything they need. The system is incentivized to provide the Chinese Party with everything that needs. What does that mean? That means we set the rules to benefit Chinese companies and the Chinese companies and the government have taken advantage of those rules to be a predatory, or a better word, a parasitic economy on the United States and other democracies. And unless we cut those ties, it's just like if you have a tumor, the tumor continues to pull more and more blood from your body. The same thing that, that China will do, it will pull more and more blood uh, from, from, from the American society. Uh, let me ask you, uh, your, uh, uh, one of your very good friends, Joe Biden, if you don't mind me talking about your uh, good friend, Joe Biden, how, how do you feel about him now being the, you know, now he's, he's, he's it, you know, Warren is endorsing him, you know, Sanders endorsed him, and oh my gosh, Obama's not endorsing him, this is cat catastrophic, Obama endorses him, Buttigieg, everybody, Super Tuesday, he's had momentum, right? 
what what happens to us if biden gets elected let's just say this happens and let's just say they can kind of get people to do voting from you know home and they don't have to go and you know voter fraud and all that stuff happens what what does america look like in 2021 if joe biden is president okay well so you have to understand that i'm i'm a little bit of a different uh um i'm a little bit of a different species when it comes to uh voting i'm right now i'm a one I'm a one-issue voter. It really is our relationship with the Chinese Communist Party. So as I look around, so first of all, I'm not really content with any politician that's been uh, in politics for decades in this country because I think that they've, they've completely missed what, what was going on with regard uh, to China. That being said, um, you know, between, let's say, so let's look at the Democratic side. Between Biden and Pelosi, I would, I would be more inclined to elect Pelosi than I would Biden because at least Pelosi has been consistent about her views on China and the Chinese Communist Party. That has been, whether, whether you like her politics or not, that she's been consistent on. Uh, on, the, on the right, you know, I don't know anybody that's been consistent for a long time on the Chinese Communist Party, and they probably wouldn't be in politics if they had. And so I think one of the challenges that we have is you know, anybody that's an established poli establishment politician that's running for the highest office in the land is not prepared to lead us away from the Chinese Communist Party. That's the way I look at it. Um, I, I, don't, I don't favor Biden just because I think he, he clearly has um, a favoritism towards China and the Chinese Communist Party. Do you think the, the, the tariffs would go away if Biden becomes president with China? You know, I don't know that we'd have a different um, outcome because I do see that some of the younger politicians um, are starting to come around to understanding the danger and the threat of the Chinese Communist Party. doesn't matter if they're on the right or if they're on the left. So I think it'd be much harder to get, you know, the things through Congress. But what would happen is, is you know, he just would not – you would slow things down that need to be done to protect the American – population. So I want to see somebody in there that's aggressively going after this. And, you know, and then let's, let's go another four years where we're actually focused on protecting our businesses and our people. And then let's see where we stand before we even think about, you know, uh, having a more open, you know, um, policy with regard to China. The Chinese Communist Party is not going to change. So I, I would say that, you know, you have to view that with, with clearer eyes. Do you, do you think President Trump's the right uh, leader during times like this to continue challenging and pushing China? I, I think he is. And, and the reason is, is because he's not a politician. And, um, you know, what I saw when I was at the White House is, look, he just asks questions. And, and for me, you know, if you're sometimes it is the case that the best leader for a situation is one that didn't grow up in the system, because then they can question why the system is the way it is. They can ask questions, and if they don't get good answers, then they can make a decision that no other person that grew up in that system would be willing to make. The, the hardest thing it is for, for people to do that, that have been in a bureaucracy for, for decades is really realize that they've, that they've been going the wrong way for a long time, and that those people are very hard to convince. And and so I would, I would definitely look at somebody that's outside the mainstream, you know, to make the change. Now what I see coming forward is there's a lot of, um, you know, both Republican and Democratic senators and congressmen uh, and women that are actually waking up. And so I feel much more comfortable about our future in terms of the, the establishment because they're going to be established during a time when we recognize the threat and they're going to be more wary of it. You know, but of course... You know, the problem with, with this current system is term limits allows for all of these people that have, you know, really just been in the government all their lives and haven't actually had to go and, and, and live out in society. So I think in a way, because we don't have term limits, we have a disconnect between our politicians that have been in office for decades and the populace. If this continues past November, you see Trump still getting reelected? Um, I hope so. I'm, 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 I'm confident that he will because I think um, the people recognize that, you know, we have to go a different, we have to go in a different way, which is, by the way, why 
um, a socialist, you know, Bernie Sanders almost won, you know, the primary last time. I, I think this time, you know, the Democratic Party doesn't really, um, it's got to, it's got to, it's got to come to grips with the fact that it's got a significant percentage of its, of its base that doesn't agree with, um, with Biden as a pick. A big, I mean, AOC is going after him hardcore. She's not even slowing down at all. Uh, okay, so let's shift back to the 5G conversation with coronavirus. When I asked you earlier, I said, do you see anything being linked between 5G and coronavirus? You said absolutely not. Tell me why. Well, you know, I saw a couple of these videos where, um, you know, the guy said that, uh, I can't remember the, the, the guy's name, but he said basically that, you know, there's a theory that radiation has caused um, a genetic breakdown of the body and you're excreted uh, pieces of genetic code and that's what viruses are. They're not, they're not actually organisms. Um, they're pieces of your DNA that have been broken off by this radiation and they're expressing themselves, you know, out of your orifices and this is just indicative of widespread radiation. That's just, that's, that's, that's fiction. That's not science. And so, you know, viruses do exist. They are organisms, um, and and they have a specific way of, of doing the things that they do. And um, and so, you know, five. First of all, five G is not very widely deployed, right? AT and T has five G on their phone, but that's not five G. Uh, most companies in the West are deploying. Uh, 5G radios on a very, very slow rate because the telecom industry is really a dying industry. For each added bit of capacity, uh, the financial returns just aren't there for them to add more capacity. So they're really, they're really slowing down the deployment of 5G. The only ones, by the way, that are deploying 5G uh, at, a, at a very high rate are, is China. And of course, South Korea did it. Now, South Korea did it um, it's got a smaller country, a smaller population. It's got much more broadband penetration in the society. It really wants to be on the leadership of, of, of science and technology. And so it's, it did it as a national strategic decision. China is doing it as a national strategic decision, but they're not just deploying it in China. They're deploying it in any country that will take Huawei. So the, the biggest deployments in 5G are coming from the Chinese, uh, clearly. So, um, you know, if that's – so then you say, well, Wuhan uh, is, the, um, is the start of it because of all the 5G that China has been deploying. Um, well, I would say that you've got a higher probability that it came from the P4 lab, you know, where they were working on that virus, um, you know, for the specific gain of function. That's why more likely it came out, not because, um, you know, 5G. It's just it's, – it's, 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 it's like um, – it's like, uh, you know, the, the term, uh, the magic term, alchemy. You know, it's a blend of science and magic. And so it sounds plausible when you listen to these videos, but it breaks down under, um, under scrutiny, under rig rigorous scientific scrutiny. You know, viruses are real. They're not excretions of your DNA because you've been radiated. It's just not, it's, it's just not science. Last thing here before we wrap up is, I don't know if you heard yesterday, the CEO of Huawei stepped down. So uh, as of yesterday, he stepped down and he replaced himself with Jin Pu. Uh, Ren Zheng uh, Fei is no longer the director. Now it's Jin Pu. And British intelligence is uh, uh, challenging UK to reconsider their relationship with Huawei, putting stricter uh, control of high tech and other industries that are coming in. And Huawei responds in an open letter calling not to change his partnership on 5G with Huawei. This is to UK. If they do, it will cause them harm, meaning it'll cause UK harm. And then obviously you know about the fact that with France, they needed to buy some medical equipment from China. And China said, we will sell it to you and we'll make it for you if you agree to use Huawei to allow it to come to uh, France. What do you think about when you're seeing a country like UK telling China, no, we, we, we wanted to do business. We no longer want to do business with you. And they're getting that kind of recommendation to them. Well, you know, I think um, UK is a very special case. You know, 15 years ago, British Telecom went all Huawei. And, um, and so that means they have to build an entire new network from scratch. 
really nobody else has to do that. So I always knew it was going to be hard to get them over the hurdle, um, but not impossible. It's just going to take a, lo a longer amount of time. So, you know, it, it, I think what it, what it, uh, what you didn't, um, what you didn't say is that they actually also went, Huawei went, China went to India with Huawei and told the Indians, if you take Huawei, it'll make you better able to control uh, the coronavirus because, you know, the sensors that you can attach to the network will allow you to, to monitor the population for, for fevers and, and do contact tracing. So, so they're actually using it as a selling mechanism for 5G. I think what you're seeing is the, the whole world's waking up to the danger of, uh, it's not 5G, it's data security. It's really privacy and data security that's a, that's a challenge and artificial intelligence. I don't think I said this last time, but uh, go read uh, The AI Superpower by Kai-Fu Lee. He's China's leading artificial intelligence researcher. What Kai-Fu Lee says is that China is to data as Saudi Arabia is to oil. In other words, the strategy of China is to become the Saudi Arabia of data. Why? Because it drives artificial intelligence. That's what they're after. They're after the ability to be dominant in the economic sphere, in the social sphere, in the political sphere, and in the military sphere, and owning all that data will, will allow them to have the artificial intelligence to do that. That's what they believe. That's, uh, that's, pretty, that's pretty powerful right there to say they want all the data. I remember 10 years ago, 12 years ago, TED Talks had a conference and they said one of the main things uh, uh, moving forward is going to be data. Everything's about data. And we know now everything is data. Everybody who's building any kind of data companies. Nowadays, you want to go to college, the right degree to get is predictive analytics because they're hiring you left and right for uh, folks who understand predictive analytics. Uh, Robert, I'll give you the final thought. Anything here that you want to share with us before we wrap this up with coronavirus, with the current conditions, where people are at? People have a lot of thoughts, a lot of questions, a lot of fears, a lot of concerns. They're watching the news 24-7 with notifications telling them, you know, these are terrible times and scary times. What are your final thoughts for us here? Um, you're going to be better than fine. You know, I, I see this con country coming out of this coronavirus and coming out of this tight relationship with the Chinese Communist Party and making our, our society, our economy, our, 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 our people stronger than ever, you know, freer than ever. I, I really believe we have everything in front of us and we have all the things that we need. We have all the resources we need. We have the people, we have the talented people. We have you know, the constitution that provides us, you know, a freedom uh, to live the life in the way that we want. I think, you know, I'm extremely positive on America. You know, I can, I can say with confidence that in spite of all this, this is, we are probably on the precipice of unprecedented economic growth and science and technology advancement. We just, we, we need to recognize what we have in front of us and seize it. So you're bullish with the economy, with the market. I'm, I'm bullish. I'm, I'm 100% all in, long America. I love it. Well, listen, it's good to have you back here uh, with us. Thank you so much for coming back to Value Tim and being a guest again. Thank you, Patrick. It's great to see you again. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And by the way, if you haven't already subscribed to Value Tainment on iTunes, please do so. Give us a five-star. Write a review if you haven't already. And if you have any questions for me that you may have, you can always find me on Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. Just search my name, Patrick Bid-David. And I actually do respond back when you snap me or send me a message on Instagram. With that being said, have a great day today. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.